Hi, I'm Jess. And I'm Abby. And you're listening to Did the Reading, the podcast where we did the reading, so you don't have to. What are we looking at this week, Abby? Well, thank you for asking, Jess. This week, we are looking at The 59th Bear, which is a short story by Sylvia Plath. We've managed to put it off this long, but Abby has finally persuaded me to look at Sylvia Plath. To delve into it. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, like, I was like, is it too early to do the bell jar, possibly emotionally? But a short story that people might to. not have heard of, I feel is a good in. I feel like it's subtle. I feel it's novel. No, um, it is interesting. I thank you. I have not read it before. Yes. Because I've been reading some of those, oh, this is like part two of Jess Butcher's an accent, Cortazar sto- short stories. Yeah, 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 I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's Axolotl. very, well, indeed. But I feel like it's very fun. It's accessible. It will take our dear listeners a matter of minutes to read. Indeed. Why did you pick this one? I picked this one because I read this collection um, a number of years ago, probably back when I was applying, because I did lots of Sylvia on my personal statement. And uh, I remember enjoying this story. I think she's done a couple of things with kind of like that kind of bear symbolism moment and I thought to myself I enjoy it also I thought it was kind of an interesting editorial question because obviously um Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams as a collection was one of Ted Hughes's posthumous um selling parts of her estate I'm trying to put that in a way that uh, doesn't come off as critical no so you know obviously in the aftermath of her death he sold quite a lot of her stuff he sold her diaries um and he sold this collection as an entirety because obviously quite a lot of these stories have been published separately she'd published a lot in like mademoiselle when she was younger miss uh she had like a deal with the new yorker that they would get first dibs on any of her stories for a couple of years approaching her death i'm going to say from 61 um so this is like the first time they're kind of like pulled together And I think that's also an interesting question that he'd like pulled them together. He thought it was worth putting them together and that they had something to say in conversation with one another. But also it's a super interesting intro. I'm not like, I don't think you've, have you read this intro? Oh, to the book? Yeah. To the collection? No, I haven't. But there was a lot of, um, in my kind of brief Googling, there was a lot of conversation around it because uh, I would never attempt to say i know as much as you do about ted and sylvia thank you (laughs) but the emphasis and kind of like weight of autobiography in any reading of hers yeah and like any conversation especially like around editorial Mm -hmm. is always present no well i mean like i think this is like a particularly fascinating one because i think um Ted Hughes had like a range of opinions on um, Sylvia Plath's work and I think for example I think he thought her poetry was pretty good um, <laughs> in places but he didn't rate her short stories okay and he didn't rate her novel but like he kind of edits this whole collection he splits it by what's successful and what's not and then he writes in the intro like a couple of these are just little uh, bits and bobs she put together when she was at college and it's like yeah yeah arguably (laughs) do you want to talk about the um the the plot would that give you pleasure um oh i was about to say yes but i wish you would (laughs) 
phrase it like that. I can do that for you. There's this couple who Norton and Sadie and Norton. Sadie, thank you. Mm-hmm. And they are on a they're like driving around. Where are they specifically? I didn't quite clock that. Somewhere I'm in gonna say it felt, you know, yellow vivacious, hot and woodsy. California. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. They're somewhere in America with a lot of large trees, is where I'll go with that. And they're bears. and bears. That's also very key. So they're driving around and like visiting some waterfalls some lakes some springs and things like that and they kind of have a couple of arguments i'm going to go very loose on this very this is incredibly loose high level. <laughs> <laughs> and they have like a few arguments and there's some spats and they like make it up again anyway the main action is they come back to the campsite at the end of the evening because they've been counting bears throughout their trip and he estimates what was it like 70 something 71 and she estimates 59 and then they're counting them as they drive around and spoil the wildlife and then they get back to the campsite at the end by this point they've spotted like 57 I think Mm. and then there's 58 as they come in and then it's like in the middle of the night isn't it so it wakes something wakes what was his name? Norton up mm-hmm. and turns out it's a bear. So, no. yes. And so he goes outside to try and shoo it away. And it's like stomping on his wife's hat and <sighs> eating their fried fish. And it's all going horribly wrong. Me as and bad. it's true. And he's like, this is <laughs> ugly. Um, and it kills him. And it's the 59th bear. But do we know um, that it kills him? Do we know? Well, we can get on to that later. (laughs) I actually have not prepped for this question, so you can't even get mad at me for it. But I'm going to ask the classic, what would your GCSE comparisons be? Oh, we haven't had this for a while. I haven't had this for a hot second. (laughs) Too short a second, you could argue. Um, I don't know. I feel like we didn't do many... We've never, like, at GCSE level or, like, at school, we never studied kind of short stories or things where the symbolism isn't super, super obvious. <laughs> and that's not, that's me, um, that's a comment on, like, the curriculum, not the, like, the teaching we received. Um, but I can, I can offer a couple. Oh, can you? Now I think of it. Okay, so probably my first one would be, have you read uh, The Silver Bowl by Miranda July? It was in The New Yorker. I have not. There's actually a really good um, podcast. I can't remember who they have on it. Um, You know, The New Yorker podcast where they like talk about books or whatever. Basically, the kind of plot of The Silver Bowl that she's talking about, um, she has this relationship. You know, she's married to this guy called Alex. um, And she, this kind of the big... The thing is that she feels kind of emotionally detached from him as she has from every other lover that she's previously been with because she feels that she is still kind of disconnected from her sexuality, which pivots around this this moment when she made a sex tape when she was younger. And she feels like this sex tape is what her sexuality is, but she'll never be able to recapture that moment. And basically in it, it was a kind of like masturbatory video and she had like all these props 
and uh you know like a teddy bear or like a, a towel or something and a silver bowl and she never worked out what the silver bowl was used for blah 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 anyway she kind of has this sort of slightly emotional cheating moment with the neighbor and then he kind of borrows that moment and brings it back into his relationship like i think it's something like they go stargazing together and then she he starts stargazing with his wife mm. and then in the kind of closing scene the, the protagonist explains to her husband she's like i i feel you know disconnected from you because of this video and she shows him the video and they they sort of act it out together and then the, he uses the silver bowl and he he works out how it fits into the equation so it becomes a kind of point of unity Okay. basically what i was like trying to get to it is better than that sounded which sounded like all over the place like she's got a very like compelling narrative style no it does sound very um you know there's that thing when you're like reading short stories and it's that kind of thing where it's like very very simple but like compellingly written and you're like oh it's about this and you kind oh, of <laughs> oh it's about humanity um, um <laughs> no but i think like kind of what I, the point i was trying to get to and i kind of like disconnected way it was like what she's kind of constantly talking about there's this like moment in the beginning of the story which always really captures me where it's like sometimes I feel I'm so close to him that if I wanted I could curl up inside of him and other times I look at him and I'm like why is this man living in my house I don't recognize him and he sometimes looks at me and feels like he has to introduce himself and it's like that kind of like simultaneous intimacy and disconnect, I think is like so central to this story. Like mm. Norton's constantly like making assumptions about like who Sadie is, like saying, oh, she's this really fragile person. Like, oh, she's this. Oh, she's that. And yet nothing that she does seems to play out those like fantasies of behavior. Do you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I totally know what you mean. There's so many instances of that where you're just reading. And I feel like also what happens is you kind of catch yourself thinking, oh, this is what this woman's like. And then you're like, no, this is his, this is him speaking. Mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. what he thinks she is. But then there's also, there's that one quite almost tender, intimate moment where the kind of intuitions of them both do actually match up. When yeah. they like, um, what am I trying to say? When they like make up in the car, when Sadie has like, starts crying, because she's just like, all I wanted to do was see this particular pool or whatever it was. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, the simultaneous, like, intimacy and distance and confusion and kind of, especially if in, well, this is a marriage, isn't it? So, like, yeah. a long-term relationship, occasionally just having those snippets where you look at them and think, like, who are you? Yes. And I think also, like, that kind of brought in for me, like, uh, you know, uh, Ian Forster's Morris, Maurice. This is, like, oh, the okay. cl- like Clarice Clarice issue from the other episode, but, like... <laughs> Like that bit of like this relationship between Morris and oh my god, what is his name? Hugh Grant. Um, where like I'm really they... sorry, I'm not leaving floundering. I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> Have you watched it? I haven't. No, but I'm I'm just writing down lots of things to do once I've handed this essay in now because both of those sound like really good. Um, oh, they're so good. But but like in this, it's kind of like he had. They, they sort of, for a brief period of time, have a, uh, a romantic relationship. And then um, Hugh Grant breaks it off. And it's like, he wants to marry a woman. He wants to lead a political career. He wants to be able to exist um, in a society which is kind of obviously homophobic as a heterosexual man. But they still have this very, very intimate relationship based on you know that shared history and I think there's also a a moment of that where it's like 
you know, it almost feels like those times of complete intimacy and complete understanding are past. But that that kind of the reality of what's shared makes them really close. Is that? No, I think that makes that sense. Is that really like, I don't know. No, because then it's, um, there's that kind of element of like a longer term relationship when like obviously it's kind of the, mm, I'm really dancing around the point here. <laughs> the kind of weight that you well, get to it like shared experience mm. versus like genuine connection yeah and it's difficult because like so much of any relationship is shared experience like regardless of whether that's like a romantic one or like anything like there's always the history mm. which like builds into it so it's kind of like difficult to say that it makes it false for for that being a foundation but yeah I think course. it does feel in places like you know like obviously there's so little dialogue but and I mean, I think you feel it in the rest of the Sylvia Plath stories. Like, I mean, for example, that amazing moment in the bell jar when Buddy Willard um, pulls his trousers down and she's like, his genitals look like a pair of turkey gizzards. And she's like, I don't want to see you anymore. Like, it's it's so amazing. But it is like literally so like a revulsion with him, but also this simultaneous like sense that they're bonded together because she's like, I'm literally going to marry this man. Is Sadie the original Rate My Dogs woman or the original self-insert fan fiction? With the Rate My Dogs one, which what, what are you? As you, in know the... that, you know that that Twitter where they're like 11 out of 10, amazing oh, dog. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I feel like she's that. She's like fat cinnamon bear, 12 out of 10. <laughs> 13, brown bear, stunning, baby bear, love it, 11 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> no I know what you mean because I think there is um like she does come across as very although it is as we've already discussed through Norton's eyes she does come off with this kind of like naive optimism and I guess (laughs) like that element of it but I don't know I don't know if I know much about the like personality behind the um what was the other one self-insert fanfic oh you could go very deep on this one in terms of yeah, because the, the reason in a way I like put it in is I think one of the like most interesting things in like the bell jar, here I go again, boys, um, is you know that bit where she, where Esther is writing a story about herself and it's just, just after she's been rejected from the Harvard summer school and she's like, the character is going to be me. I count the same number of letters against my name. And then when you start following that, that it's like, Sylvia she's got this big habit of doing like aligned names mm-hmm. um like in a way because then it's kind of an interesting question Sylvia I think it does before I say this n-o-r-t-o-n-s-y-l-v-i-a so Sylvia and Norton have the same number of letters I, I swear I'm not like a conspiracy theorist like she this is in the bell jar if you haven't read it just picture Abby like in front of one of those <laughs> it's like tinfoil pieces hat. of string Tinfoil hat, like counting on her fingers, like one, two, three. It's like, I bet you didn't realise, but three, Illuminati. And everyone's like, what? Um, it's a triangle. It's like, you ever thought that the letter A, when it's capitalised, can look kind of like a triangle? And everyone's like, what? The ease but, with which you just summoned up that as like a example <laughs> is actually quite concerning. Anyway. Every day I work on it. But also like Sadie, Sylvie kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd kind of wondered, 
she just like you do often feel like there's a kind of sense where she's playing out or kind of like reconsidering or reapproaching or re-examining some of her own like personal experiences or personal life through the through her characters and I kind of like had just wondered whether that I mean like obviously it's I don't know no I find this really interesting because the angle that I'm coming at it with is that kind of um art that's written by women Mm. which never which um is always framed as autobiographical and has a really really limited claim to like the universal in comparison with men's writing men's writing sure so that kind of and then the ability to like obviously like writing is going to come from your own experience and your own whatever Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but then there's the element of like how that's then judged which obviously was like the entire basis of your dissertation Dissertation. so don't worry I'm sure we'll come back to that at some point no I like agree and I think it is like it's a really interesting question because it's like are we overstating it to say it's about her and I think on the one hand, she like has said many, many times, I say she has said, she had said that she, um, that, you know, parts of her life contributed or like were borrowed in order to like frame her stories. But equally, you know, like there are a number of parts of it that don't quite like line up or even the fact that she inhabits Norton's perspective rather than Sadie's. Sure. Like, what are we supposed to take from that? You know, like if if we view it as solely autobiographical, is it her like projecting into him her project his projection of her or like what she conceives it to be like what do you know what I mean yeah but then I it think feels even, overtly like, reductive it, to say yeah because then yeah. You, you could even read that as being like um oh she's attempting to take control of and shape the narrative of a man who's married to and watching a woman who she probably aligns herself with yeah and I guess but in a way you can like also too see- many backtracks almost yeah I mean like it kind of reminds me if you know that like Margaret Atwood quote which is like you kind of the constant internalization of like the male gaze oh it's that um oh the John Berger essay where like yeah ways of seeing themselves being looked at and it's like men act women oh what's the I've literally used this in so many essays I can't believe I can't remember this yeah and I also read an interesting book about it and there was a word a phrase she used for it it was kind of called like something like personal objectification which again is going to be wrong but like this kind of sense of constantly seeing oneself as an object rather than an individual and I guess in a way it's funny and stupid to accuse her of doing that when we are by flattening the kind of distance between her and the book doing the same thing yeah exactly which I guess is you know the the lifelong problem with Sylvia Plath what does it mean for there to be so many absences in the book okay I've like wondered about um there's like always things missing like for example they run out of fuel they don't manage to visit the pond there are things that are not said for example when they drive past the baron he doesn't say it you know he's like we're hungry but not only do we not see them ever not eat we don't see them like we don't see that hunger that's kind of an absence prior to that i guess i guess and then like even in that closing statement you know there is the assumption that he's been killed but that shrill shriek could also be someone else witnessing it 
Yeah. Like we never, we it's not evidence that in itself is one of the absences that the story's contending with, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. No, this is a very interesting question now that my brain's like gotten into gear. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's. I think because also their like their water bottle or like um whatever it is gets nicked as well, and that's yes, like a exactly. weirdly central plot point. Yeah. Well, I think the main absence of the ones you so beautifully listed for me um, is the kind of like idea of things unsaid. Mm. And that's what constructs this relationship as something that's so like compelling and probably like understandable or like resonant with a Mm. lot of readers. And I think that that dynamic and the kind of like frustration almost is like so many stories or like literally like all of Shakespeare is just like communication issues isn't it like I don't want to be reductive that is quite the point yes agreed (laughs) but do you know what I mean that kind of um dynamic is so like frustrating and Mm -hmm. compelling and the idea of like gaps and almost like barriers that just don't need to be there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um yeah and I guess in a way like we can see all these kind of like other missing pieces as like echoes or externalizations or manifestations of like that central absence in their relationship like that kind of I don't know I guess like that lacking of like just talking about shit um is that the central issue would you say of their their relationship relationship? I don't know really because I guess it's hard to judge like Abby's like I'm not gonna pass judgment I well I wouldn't you know I'm not I'm not therapizing them I think but it's also like we're seeing them in a way another absence is their absence from like a normal familial structure and lifestyle like they're on holiday so it's not how like it's like a displacement so it's kind of like you know for example the rest of the time their relationship might flow perfectly because they uphold a certain things work a certain way at home that suits them and it's only yeah. now that that kind of absence is like felt and made explicit because they're forced to be around each other 24 7 yeah because also in, in like the most basic sense a holiday is a kind of like loosening of structures or routines and yeah i'll so we'll to new york with my honestly. 20 piece itinerary <laughs> <laughs> You're like it's a it's a loose new structures. I'm like to assume that, that we're waking up past eight AM. It's like that is enough. Uh, <laughs> I will not accept that. I feel like this is a good lead on from our New York chat. Uh do you have any holiday planning tips for Sadie and Norton? <laughs> that was a a very sly way to make sure I have to keep at least a bit of the New York chat. Yeah, exactly. In you will post-edit. have no choice. <laughs> B, I would say, I don't know. Perhaps invest in some sort of high quality cold box for your food, mm. so that bears can't break into it. Do you know what? Reading that, I really do. It makes me think to myself: you need to get yourself a camper van or a caravan which a bear is not going to be able to prize open with its little hands like I'm not 
I mean, honestly, the fact that people would be suggesting you're going to sit in a tent while there are going to be bears wandering around. I mean, I've always wanted to do a road trip, but now it makes me realise we can't do it in like a Cadillac or some shit like this. I think also it's always a good idea, as I have repeatedly said on my itinerary, to plan when and where you're going to eat. The thing is, Abby, they had plenty of food. They've had the already mentioned fried fish, which sounded lovely. And it sounded nice, didn't it, actually? All the kind of... I mean, I, it was like just before lunch as so I was reading this, but I was still like, oh, yes, that sounds Ooh, lovely. Fish. Yeah, but I did think, you know, you've got to bring a can or two if you're heading out. You've got to bring some snacks, some breadsticks. Mm. Where's the planning? A Nature Valley bar. Yeah, exactly. All those things. It's like when we went to Reading and you're like, just, just tuck a little, get a little. Prepared. Everyone always takes the piss and then everyone wants a snack. That's the thing. You can never, you can never be too prepared. Because I think the thing is as well, like even, do you remember when we, we got the coach down? Again, this is literally just going to turn into like holiday highlights and we're going to have to like do a slide to your photos and be like, um, slide one of 65. <laughs> when we were like getting the um, bus down from Boston. York. Yeah. And we like, um, just got all those um oh my god what are they called charleston shoes possibly the best sweet to exist in the states honestly what a competitive sweet i'd always do a like a late night trip to the service station and charleston shoes are the best so so yeah better protected car better snacks i think better planning would have potentially avoided the argument on the final day where she was like we have to go here because it's our last day you don't have time i feel like they should have established early what their parameters were and what they wanted to achieve it's true also perhaps doesn't norton have a headache for like two-thirds of the narrative perhaps some paracetamol js we wouldn't have forgotten that that would have been right in the rucksack we wouldn't because do you remember i kept getting dehydration headaches (laughs) Okay, Abby, I have one final question for you. How superb. Um, so obviously we've already talked about how the ending is uncertain, but something definitely goes down. And mm. there's a bit a few pages in to the story where it goes, it never occurred to Norton that his wife, that his wife might outlive him. Mm-hmm. So if you could tell me what I you think not. of the ways in which the idea of kind of like mortality or physical pain or, you know, doom is, goes, like runs through the narrative up to this slightly strange ending. Okay, perhaps I shall. Um, I feel like there are a couple of interesting things. I feel like we kind of get the sense of countdown throughout the story, both in the sense of the the title of the story is 59th Bear, and we're kind of going 56, 57, 58. So there's kind of a sense of like, oh, God, the bear. Um, but also like the gas tank dwindling down is kind of an equal thing. Um, and I think, you know, seeing the destructiveness of the bears. So I think we've kind of just got the sense throughout the narrative that um, things are going to close up troublingly. 
yeah uh, I hadn't yeah. thought of the gas tank actually that's really interesting mm. in the kind of like um he because it's not just that they're running out he talks at one point about the the dial being below zero yeah with the idea of like he's almost on borrowed time yes kind of thing yeah exactly and I think there's that kind of thing where it's almost like there are points where it's like ignoring the sign, like the fact that they hit zero and they keep pushing it or like they see the 58th bear and neither of them comment on it. And mm. obviously those are for like different reasons, but kind of there's that sense where it's like almost an attempt to skip the inevitable, um, yes. which I guess kind of... It's interesting because it's kind of like, what is the significance of mortality within the story apart from to generate this sense of like impending doom? And I guess it's like, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of perhaps an indication that everything we do in life is kind of numerically or otherwise kind of pushing towards a final closure. Um, Yeah. Or... Uh, I have like got into this really weird thing of thinking lately like what if you think of there was a certain point where you went to like someone's house for the last time or you Mm. sat on a swing for the last time ever or you I don't know there's that one where it's like oh your parents put you down for the last time at some point yeah it's so weird to think isn't it and I just think like kind of it's sort of that as well that it's kind of like you know, creating a list of little closures um, mm. that all kind of culminate in um, his passing, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, no, there's the kind of, um, what am I trying to say? What are you trying to say? That's the million dollar question, I think, today. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the sense of, uh, like, not being able to stop it. How, and like you say, however you decide to, like, demarcate it in terms of, counting bears or whatever such like such like thank you that that's only ever going to be kind of a way of marking it or kind of splitting it up rather than controlling or being able to stop it yeah Uh, because also what did you think if anything about the fact that I don't know why I'm very hung up on this but Norton has these really visceral headaches (laughs) like yeah because then there's that bit where it's like um when you even first meet him he's like waking up from a nap and his like eyes sting like sand is in them or something like that and then he's got this headache that kind of swirls around like behind his eyes and then settles at the base of his skull like a bird Mm -hmm. all of this kind of stuff I think it's perhaps a way to bring the body into it where it's kind of like if you're often in these kind of quite cerebral um short stories where it's like dealing with relationships and the kind of um like hypothetical impacts of specific moments on like your relationship and how you feel about people then it can be that the body is in a way erased like we we have no sense of it other than it being like a kind of meeting or distancing of minds and um for him to kind of viscerally continue to feel these headaches and they to interact with his thinking and mental processes kind of very closely pairs his emotional experience with his physical one uh and so we're kind of like made constantly aware that this like emotional moment is going to have a physical consequence i guess yeah 
because it's also like when we were talking in the very first episode about I think horror I movies yes and <laughs> when <laughs> and the idea that you have to have um moments of almost bringing it back to the physical body to actually just not lose the impact of in the one case like the horror and the yeah fear. and in this case I think the especially because the end is so metaphorical um let me find it the that feeling of like hearing the scream from outside of himself yeah a hot nausea flared through his heart and bowels he struggled tasting the thick sweet honey that filled his throat and oozed from his nostrils so I think if you hadn't already because also that's all like just literally reading this reminds me how obsessed I was with her I was like another banging description Sylvia (laughs) unbelievable it's true I kept going through and I was like that's a fantastic metaphor Sylvia in my humble opinion, 10 out of 10. <laughs> so I'm just going to write in and tell them that uh, actually she was right. Uh, <laughs> it's a fair point, to be honest. Uh, great work. That's all I've got to say. You keep... I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That was mainly the point I was trying to make, though. I said, like, you've already been very aware of... She mentioned his skull, like, at least twice, three times. And, yes, I still don't know. I feel like when I first read it, I was like, oh, yeah, he's dead. But then yeah. now you're making me question it. Where are you at? Um, also, in a way, I think actually it's like really uh, circles back to uh, where we started, where we began. Because I think there is that kind of similar moment in the like ending of The Pit and the Pendulum where you're almost like, he's dead. And then it's like, he's not dead. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like the, the kind of not knowing. I mean, and I think it's also like quite uh, classic Sylvia because she does a similar thing at the end of the bell jar with the walking into that final meeting with her psychotherapist Mm. um and us not knowing the outcome but like kind of anticipating success for her but in many ways in the pit in the pendulum the element of it is that whilst you don't know there is that slight sense like you can conjecture to the very very end of the narrative that he will at least be alive that is powerful conjecture from you thank you whereas in this one less so like it even just says like he could not tell what the scream was there's all this confusion do we want to end on the fact that or in fact I suggest that we do if you tell me about the fact that it's not just the last bear but it's her bear in the final sentence yeah I guess in a way it's like there are two things it's her winning the bet so it's kind of like a moment of um excitement I guess but also you know, the bear literally destroys her hat. So we kind of see it as both a victory and a failure for her and possibly also her husband. So secondary. I think it's also like an interesting kind of like representation. Like, do we see the bear as like what she wishes she could do? Like, it's her affiliation with these bears, like because they are powerful or because she like recognises something about what she'd like to be in the bears. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think you're right with the kind of like two sides of it, because Mm. it's not just her winning the bet, but it's kind of like the sense of completion of like the countdown that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, But it is also that's the only line in it where I was like, oh, where you get oh, oh, where you have perhaps like some insight into her motivations or emotions. Mm. like the rest of the story you just see her like what she wants to do yeah in terms of literally 
like going to a particular place and then you see her crying and mm. you see her a bit cheered up by the end and then she tells him to go and sort the bear out yeah exactly um go so sort the bear out. go and sort the bear out um if say. i've said it once yeah <laughs> so there's that very very hesitant and obviously kind of you can't do anything about it because it's the final sentence like hinting at I guess almost a kind of like interiority if you want to read it as like you say the kind of bear doing whatever she felt she could not do save his work husband to death fabulous thank you so much for talking to me Jess thank you for sharing your opinions teaching me your ways putting up with my Sylvia Plath obsession well thank you for sharing your love it is no trouble. Perhaps you would like to tell the listeners how they may find us upon social media. Thank you. We are Did the Reading Pod on all social medias, and you can also email us at didthereadingpod at gmail.com. And you can listen to us on ACAST, Spotify, and iTunes. That is. Podcasts. Stunning. All right. Uh, I shall see you next week then, Jessica. I shall speak to you next week. Thank you for listening.